Welcome to the Philosophy of Time podcast. My name is Sean Power. I'm a philosopher who specializes in working in the philosophy of time, especially in relation to our experience of the world, our understanding of it, the illusions and errors and hallucinations we go through in living in it, and how this relates to our understanding of what is true in the actual world. I hope you enjoy it. One idea that we all have about ourselves in relation to ourselves at other times is that we are the most informed and we have the most intimate access to ourselves at a different time. Especially through our memories. What happened to me when I was 25? Lots of other people might have lots of different opinions about me, but the only person who really knows what happened, who was really there all the time, was me. And so when I stand there now in front of other people and tell them what happened when I was 25, I am more of an authority than other people are. Let's say I have amnesia or I've cold gaps of time. But given I remember something happening to me, then it seems like I am the authority on that. If anybody else disagrees with me, then they have to be wrong. And sometimes I've had friends who said such things to me. Over the years they've said... I was a certain way at a certain time in a certain place years ago and now they've met me many years later in some coffee shop in my hometown which I've come back to or we meet by accident, they come visit me where I'm living and we talk about the old days and they talk to me about what I believed or what I felt or what I thought, what they noticed about me, what I did, more importantly, and I do the same to them. And sometimes when they've told me how I was, I think to myself, that wasn't me, that wasn't what I was like. I think they must have a mistake. If I disagree with them about me, clearly they have to be wrong. It's kind of like the philosopher H.H. Price's analysis of memory in the 1960s. If you held that someone else could be a greater authority about my past life than I am, because I can't at least be the expert, be the final arbiter on what actually happened to me, then it's the case that everybody has to be in the same way. There's nothing special about me. Like, this is a general claim. You're generally claiming that people aren't necessarily the experts on their own lives. So if that's the case, then you have to move out of side of people's individual experiences, you have to move out of things like people's own access to their own memories as being sources of knowledge, as being the kind of ground on which we build our knowledge of human histories and human lives and human identity and human experiences because what we're talking about the nature of what it is to be human you have to subtract or take it as a derivative aspect of what we should hold as proper views of the world that is to say you may have an account of human identity experience and what it means to be human and personal identity and memory and so on and what actually people are like that matches people's experiences of themselves but that comes out of a theory that you have that's prior to it and if you have a theory that actually disagrees with human beings experiences of themselves then that's their tough that's their loss
Everyone might think that they have a very strong sense of themselves through their own lives. What age are you? Okay, now think about every year of your life up until now, until you're listening to this. Now think about something that happened in each one. Certain points you won't really remember. You'll struggle maybe at three years of age or four years of age. But for the years you do remember, you have something that you remember. It can be walking to school. It can be watching a TV show. It can be playing a game. I'm guessing this is the case because it is the case with me and I've never seen anything from what people say to counter it. Sure does seem as if really clear and laid out that you need only think back to it and you'll be able to remember all of the items in your life and you just pick randomly or because it's your favourite one or because you like it. But all the others are there too and you could if you wanted to go think about them as well. This idea, this sense of you having access to your life as if your memories and the events that cause your memories that story is a book that first and foremost lies inside you it was written there and it's kept there and if anybody else wants to have the true account of what has happened to you in your life it's that book that it's got gaps in it there's bits you don't remember and everything else but it's the book with the most information it is the origin of the truth of your life it's the first draft. As journalists say, we are the first draft of history, but journalists often get it wrong. And as historians know, that when you look back over the records, you find that in time, what actually happened was not fully what was recorded in the first draft. The first draft is changed. It is only a draft. And you have multiple drafts over time. And there's a process, a set of rules by which these multiple drafts are formed. Historians will often argue about methods, about how you get to knowledge and truth. And one can draw similar analogies with their own life experience. When you reflect on your past, when you remember things that happened, you may have only been paying attention to certain things and not others. Your first draft of your life that was had in the moment of the experience, the first draft of your 16th year, was recorded by someone who wasn't fully paying attention. And then later on, when you recall it, and you think back on what actually happened, your now knowledge of what was actually going on changes things a lot. And so your memory of how you thought and what you knew and what you experienced and what you paid attention to was flawed. And you know more about the very things that you were remembering when you were younger. But it also creates an unstable ground for you personally, even if your own testimony of your own history. Right now, you're having experiences and viewpoints and you assume, well, I assume, that when I remember this time, if I remember it at all, I remember myself through experiences I'm having right now, that my Recollections, no matter what I think about what's happening right now in my life, I will only have access to what I am recording and experiencing right now. Why does that matter? In 10 years' time, I might look back on this time and think, I was only paying attention to myself, to my wife, to working and cooking, and I wasn't paying attention to these things that are going on around me. I wasn't paying attention to my own body and the way it felt, for example. I know more things about what were happening, but they were hidden to, from me, there, or I ignored them in the moment, in this moment now, as I'm recording this. And the same goes for every other year in your life. However, in all those stories, it's still the case that you are the best shot. That although, yeah, at certain points in your life, you look back at your own memories, but the own events in your life, and you'll say, I didn't really know what was going on then. And I didn't really pay attention to these details. What you're certainly going to be right about in the future is that what you experienced was all that you experienced that in the future, you can't re-experience those events again. There's a joke where a character is looking at a video and says, I need you to 
rotate the camera back and to the left and turn right and turn right and look around. The implication being that the photograph that they're looking at, or the image they're looking at, it's not just a reproduction of what was seen, but somehow or other you can kind of go into the scene and move around. But in real life, the actual original event, you have one camera and you have a recording of it, and then you can only turn to the recording and not to the original scene. So, for example, when I think back about myself when I was 22 years of age, I remember certain things about my life then. But I assume that the events I remember, I can't see things that I didn't see originally. I can't discover other perspectives that I didn't actually adopt at the time. If I remember myself sitting in a room listening to a friend of mine talk, I can't suddenly occupy the corner of the room behind them where there nobody was and look at the room. Even though I'm an authority of my own experience now, I can't be any more of an authority than I was then. I don't have a special authority that's any deeper than what I had then. I can access, perhaps, my experience at the time, the point of view. I can remember what it was like, what it tasted like, what it felt like, what, how cold it was, what the light was like, what the smell was like, what sound I heard near the room. But, but those are all the things that I experienced at the time. What I can't do is experience it from another point of view. Well, I certainly can't take it from the other point of view of another person in the room. They are literally a different brain, a different causal history to them. I don't have access to that. And I can't adopt any other perspective because there was nobody there. I would need to be able to be a ghost, to occupy points in space that have nothing there. What this means is that when you remember what you were doing on a certain day, at best you can only remember your experience of that, the knowledge you have of what was actually specific events can only be, in terms of your memory experience, what you experienced at the time. But of course you can bring in the rest of your life, and the rest of your life experience to reinterpret, to make more sense about it. For example, like I said, you can realize that a conversation you were having wasn't actually the conversation you thought it was. I have lots of those. I have lots of conversations I've had with people where I realize afterwards that what was being asked, what was being said, what was being discussed was not what I thought it was. But the idea here is that at least the sound of the voice, the timber, the, at least the way the light is in the room, the immediate experience, the authority of that is me in that moment having the experience. And then the only, the secondary authority, the next person who can be an authority in any way at all is me now, who remembers what it was like to have that experience then. And this is the fundamental component in, to, in what it means for me to be an authority over my own life, my own life experience. There are a group of philosophers who argue that our knowledge changes our experience. Um, expert experience. When we learn about the world, our experience of, when we look at a tree and someone tells us it's a maple, our experience of that tree changes. Previously we just saw this branchy thing, we might notice different features of it. So, An expert on trees sees a forest differently to a novice about trees, despite them walking through exactly the same forest. So it might be that after I have my original experience of the world, such as the conversation I had with my friend when I was 25 years of age. Now I experience it differently. And not just because it's past, that's always the case, but because I know things. I now know 
what my friend was holding in his hands as he's talking about something that a necklace that his mother had given him before she died. I know that now. So that necklace, the significance of it, the way he was holding it, seems different. And for example, I might be confused about a certain way someone spoke to me one day. And now I know that they were really, really upset about something. They were tired after work and they were angry with me. But not because it was me, but because I was slowing them down. They just wanted to go home. So they were rude to me. And so now what was confused and offensive and insulting, I now have some sympathy for them. When I remember some event in my past, I am always in it. If it's my birthday, or if it's a walk in the woods, I'm in it. This is trivial. Even saying it sounds as if I'm saying something so obvious to anyone listening that you might think it's an example of a philosopher picking over something that, trying to imply that there's some insight or something profound in something that needs no reflection or thought or examination. But it does create a distinct relationship between what we remember and ourselves in a way that we don't have towards other past events, events that we might remember learning about or might remember being told about, but we don't remember being part of. I remember what happened during the Napoleonic Wars, but not because I was part of it, because I learned about it in history. I remember some facts about the Big Bang, but not because I was there at the Big Bang or as conscious of it, as far as I know, but because I learned it in physics. But when I remember things happening, what I'm remembering is actually things happening to me. Or rather, to be more exact, when I remember things happening, I remember things happening and I'm there as well. I've made a subtle distinction there. I want to pick out two different ways of talking about remembering your past. In the first way of putting it, I said when I remember things happening, I remember them happening to me. That means that everything I remember is something that happens to me. It's a, an event in which I'm taking part. In the second one, I'm remembering events, but I'm not necessarily taking part. And in ordinary, normal, everyday ways of thinking, these two are different. I might go to see a fireworks performance or a street protest and I might not participate. I might see the police um, charging the crowd or I might see music playing and people clapping and enjoying themselves. None of these things are happening to me. I'm just observing an event as an outsider. Then again, I might be part of the protest or it might be me celebrating something. And then it is happening to me and I'm observing something happening to me. And what that means is that when we talk about things we remember happening, they don't necessarily have to be things that are happening only to us. But we definitely, in this thinking, have to be there in some way. We have to be part of the scene, even if we're not part of what's significantly happening in the scene. And given this way of understanding and thinking, it seems kind of natural to suppose that 
really you have lots of things that you remember happening where you're not really part of them. You remember the time you walked into town to go do the shopping and you walked past some shop front opening and it has nothing to do with you. Whether you were there or not makes no difference to the fact that people are actually opening up their shops early in the morning as you're making your way to the bakery or something. This is obvious. The events that you remember happening include things that have nothing to do with you. You can say you're part of the overall scene you remember happening because you have to always be there though. And this is why it's important to both take it that you can remember things that don't happen to you, but you have to be part of the memory in some way. You have to remember yourself observing it. At least that's how it seems in memory. Let's explore, push on one of those elements. I've already mentioned you can remember things happening where you are part of it. I take it as a given that you can remember events that are not happening to you, but you're there. Or you can remember events that are happening to you and you're there. Try to imagine if you could remember an event where you're not there. Can you remember an experience or can you remember going through an event that you're not there? Now, if you find that a strange thing or even an incoherent thing to say, it's okay. But we're going to pretend for a second that we can make sense of it. If we do make sense of it, we have to start thinking about things like you part of ways with your best friend or your partner. And you go down one street and they go down the other. And somehow or other, when you think back on that day, you are remembering where they went. Remembering seeing what they saw. Remembering them walking down the street, going into a shop or getting on a train that you're not on and traveling away. And when you remember that happening, you're not part of the scene. Now they are, but you're not. You can stretch a little further. Try and remember someone else on that train who has nothing to do with you whatsoever. Say the train conductor. And the train conductor gets off at a certain station after checking people's tickets. And that train conductor gets off and gets his, gets his lunch. And he's sitting down outside waiting, having his break before the next train comes in a half an hour later. And he gets on that one to check those tickets. And the idea here is that you're remembering those events happening. If you could actually remember those events, it would be quite supernatural, paranormal or parapsychological. The equivalent of remote seeing through time and space, the kind of thing that mediums claim to experience when they go into traumatic houses and start describing seeing ghosts, it would be that kind of event. It would be something trivial, a train conductor having his lunch, but it would still be something that we have no mechanism for understanding how it could occur. Some people have believed that they remember certain events in their own lives, and it turns out it didn't happen to them, and it turned out it was an actual story being told to them by someone else when they were a child. Some people report getting the dog for the first time in the family, seeing a sibling see the dog for the first time. And they confuse the story with the story about themselves meeting the dog for the first time. And the reason why they do that is they don't really remember the events at that time because they were too young. But they've heard the story about how when the dog first arrived in the house, certain things happened and they mixed up their own memory of that event, which is no memory at all. It's to do with a condition sometimes called false memory syndrome. The basic component of false memory syndrome is that people remember, have vivid, strong memories of events happening to them in their past, which didn't happen. Not only that, but they actually have these strong memories and they can be set up, they can be primed by people investigating it to have those memories. Other people can actually make them believe they have those memories by telling them stories. But it's complex and sophisticated and it suggests that what isn't happening is that people are merely having false memories, but that people are misremembering what the experience was. When I say that people merely don't merely just misremember, what I'm saying is it isn't the case that someone, you could give them a drug or you could 
if you do something to them and they will simply misremember something happening. They'll suddenly have an experience as, as if, oh, that happened to me in the past and it really didn't. The idea that you can just remember by taking a pill. Sorry, something like the film Total Recall. In Total Recall, people are plugged into a machine and their memories are downloaded into their heads and suddenly they remember going on holidays to Mars. But they never did go to Mars. But they have this memory when they come out of the machine of having gone to Mars for two weeks and having fun there. The strange thing about this is that the idea is that they don't experience, while they're in the machine, they don't experience going to Mars. It isn't, that's not what's going on. And then actually believe that they went to Mars. It isn't that they're put into a dream machine where they dream about going to Mars and when they wake up, then they, they experience their experiences as if they had gone to Mars because the dream was so vivid. The idea is that just the memories themselves are what are downloaded. It's only the memories are given to them. There's no previous experience tied to the memories. You can just be given memories without ever having to go through the experience itself in some way. But false memory syndrome, the evidence for false memory syndrome in the real world, in the actual world, is a little different. Instead, what happens is people are given some event in their lives. They're just told some event in their lives. The investigators, the scientists who are researching this, um, effectively find out about them through either interview or interview with their family, through interview with people they know. Then what they do is they ask them to describe or think about those events that happened. To use a classic example from one of the main researchers, Elizabeth Loftus. They are asked to remember going to the zoo when they were a child. And then they're told by the investigators something that's actually not true. They're told that while they're at the zoo, the participants' parents told the investigators, my son or daughter, uh, while they're at the zoo, had a balloon and it floated away and they were very upset. This never happened. Nobody told them that. The investigators made it up. The investigators say this to people and they go, do you remember? Do you remember this happening to you? Participants go, no, no, I don't remember it. And the investigators go, oh, okay, okay. And then they put the group into two. One a control group, one a non-control group. One of the ones they're interested in testing. The control group are then sent away and asked, told they're going to be interviewed in a couple of weeks about the similar events. The non-control group, the ones being tested, are asked to sit there and imagine what it would be like to hold a balloon when you're a child and lose the balloon and be upset, to kind of role play it, to think it through, to really try and fantasize it out. And then they're sent away. Because a few weeks later, when they're brought back, both groups are interviewed. And the control group, who weren't asked to fantasize at all, continue to say, no, that never happened to me. But the, the non-control group, the tested participants who are asked to fantasize, often come back and say, oh yeah, I remember that happening to me. And that's what makes them be people who have false memory. But because they're falsely remembering a time they went to the zoo as a child, had a balloon, balloon floated away and they started crying. That never happened to them. So when they remember that happening to them, it's wrong. It's a false memory of it happening to them. But what's interesting is why it's false and what exactly they got right. Why it's false is because they got the source wrong of their experience of the child holding the balloon, the balloon floating away. There really is an experience they were having of being a child holding a balloon and the balloon floating away. That, but that experience is of them being, is them imagining themselves being that, fantasizing about it. There was an experience in the past and they are remembering that experience, the experience of being a child in a balloon, but it's a fant fantasized experience. They were imagining it in the same way you might imagine a dream or you might imagine um, a movie or a fiction of some sort. Not exactly because fiction movies tend to uh, obviously have images, actual visual things that you see, but more like reading a book or reading a story or hearing a story and imagining it, being so absorbed in the story that you're fantasizing about it. 
they did have, there is an experience to that. It's accepted as an experience to imagining things, imaginative. And what these participants confuse or got wrong, they are remembering an experience they had, but they think it's a real experience because of a certain kind of story they tell themselves afterwards. So there's still a false memory here, but there isn't a false history of experience. It isn't just whipped out of cloth, you know, kind of made out of ectoplasm in the air in the moment. They have to have been having some kind of experience beforehand to get it going. They still get it wrong, though. And to generate that kind of experience, to generate that kind of false memory, it's enough to tell someone a story and then, conf- and then leave it a while for them to forget the source of where that story came from. There's a lot of other experiments around memory that suggest that there's a lot of weird aspects to memory that don't really fit a certain story that people tell about memory. The story is about accuracy. How is it that we remember something happening in the past? And how is it that we can accurately link what happened in the past through our memory to now? Because it is extremely important to our basic system of knowledge, to our epistemology, to our our way that we can know about the world, that we can trust our memory. And the question is, how do we know from memory that something happened in the past? And one answer is, well, what happens is that our memory is a byproduct byproduct of our perceptual experience and then the way our mind deals with perceptual experience. Effectively, we have certain experiences at certain times in our life and then we remember through that experience. In, a, in one way, philosophers put it is that our memory experience, our memories are grounded in our perceptual experience, our perceptions. So I see, I see a fireworks display and then I remember two days later the fireworks display. And how I know the fireworks display happened and how I can say I remember the fireworks display happening is that I my memory is linked to my perception. My perception at the time grounds my memory. My memory is linked to my perception, depends on it in some way. If I had no perception, I couldn't say that I actually saw the fireworks display. In other words, if I, if I for example, didn't go out that day and then two days later say, I remember seeing a fireworks display, but I actually didn't even leave the house. I didn't even leave my room with the curtains drawn. It's arguable that I did not actually experience the fireworks display. Instead, I experienced something else. And that, in fact, I had a false memory and I misattributed the source. I didn't really remember. Instead, I had a kind of a dream, maybe. I might have remembered something, but what I remember was a dream of a fireworks display. Or maybe an imagining of a fireworks display, and I confused it. Just as those participants confused seeing the balloon floating away and imagining seeing the balloon floating away. But it's important, is this idea, that to know things, we have to have the perception link our memory now. But what makes it really difficult, and this is the difficulty within false memory syndrome, is that it's very difficult for us after the fact to tell the difference between remembering when we imagined something happening and remembering actually experiencing the thing happening. And this is why there's certain weird aspects to our memory which aren't obvious until you start talking to people and asking them. One of the common questions you ask is you start investigating the phenomenology and the perspectival aspects of people's memory experience. What do I mean by that? The phenomenology is like what it's like to have the experience. What was it like? Was it strong sensations? Was it a bright light? Was it bright colors? Were there loud sounds? Was it painful sound? When you're asked then to describe your experience through memory of what it was like, to describe your memory experience, you're actually describing your perceptual experience filtered through your memory. You know, it's giving an account, a testimony of what it, what it was like to experience the thing. When they start investigating that and asking people about that, that's one part of it. But what they also ask them are other things, which are perspectival aspects. They ask them where they were in the room. 
they asked them what, what point of view they were observing all the events in the room. And one of the odd things is that a lot of people end up describing the position in the room, the perspective of the events that are happening that they were participating in. These were like birthdays people had. These are real events that happen. There's no arguing there. You know, normal everyday events. But what happens is people often describe them as if they're somewhere else in the room other than themselves. They see themselves blowing out the birthday candles. They see themselves skiing down the hill. There's an odd sense in which they have misremembered because if the story you tell about how memory works is that you have a perception at one moment and then your memory experience and your memories are tied to your perception. What you perceive grounds what you remember accurately. The fact that you don't actually perceive events happening to you from, say, the corner of the room or some other perspective outside your body means that when you remember it that way, that isn't properly accurately grounded and you can't be sure that you're actually remembering accurately. And lots and lots of people experience, they remember their memories all the time like this, meaning that even when people do remember events that actually happened to them, there's a doubtful element to it. There's a problematic element because they don't remember the experience as they actually went through it. Instead, they have a different way of picturing it, which is of themselves outside as if they're telling another story, almost as if they're reassembling the events that happened in a diorama in order to describe the events, sort of doing kind of an internal spatial diagramming of their past memory. And then they report that, remembering the actual event. It's interesting when you ask people to imagine or remember things, that when they describe stuff to you, the language they use often implies one thing. And then if you're actually leading questions, you might get different kinds of answers. I asked a friend of mine to imagine a unicorn. So what do you see? And she started describing it. And afterwards, I was like, so did you imagine that unicorn? And she went, yeah. I said, okay. Did you actually imagine a unicorn in front of you in some way? Can you describe it more? Or did you imagine it in some other way? Can you give me more detail about your imagining of it? Freely admitting that I probably led her in some way. At least she seemed to admit. Again, maybe she was just giving into the conversation. Or she saw where I was going and just pretended. I don't know. Take this as an anecdote. That she didn't actually imagine a unicorn. What she pictured to herself was a drawing of a unicorn. Which suggests that she wasn't really imagining something that wasn't real. She was imagining a drawing of something that wasn't real, but the drawing itself could very well have been real. And it made me wonder if it's possible that when we ask people to imagine things, they actually draw on their memory. So we can doubt our own experience and our own memory. And this shouldn't be particularly surprising. After all, we have illusions and hallucinations in our common perception. So the idea that we actually have memory illusions as well, or errors in our memory, is not particularly surprising. I have questioned that generalization in my own published academic work. I've 
in my book, Philosophy of Time and Perceptual Experience, I've asked questions about what conditions um, justify saying that a certain experience we have is an illusion or an hallucination and whether or not we can interpret it differently because those conditions are not necessarily ones we have to accept. With me, typically it's about time. It's about the different theories we have about time. Given different theories about time, we have different views about reality. And because we've got different views about reality, we have different views about how our experience can go wrong in relation to reality. Imagine that you have two different theories about the space around you. In one theory, space only extends about six or seven feet from your body. In another theory, space is as it actually is, which is that it expands, you know, as far as we know, infinitely, or as far as we need for our theory. Given these two different theories of space, you would explain your experience very differently. But you wouldn't just explain your experience very differently, you'd say when it goes wrong or right in very different ways. Let's say you are standing in a field, looking at a mountain, mist and the fog lifting out off the mountain in the early morning from the heat of the sun. One story is that you are having this experience because light from that distant object is impinging on your retina and you're seeing that distant mountain. There is an object out there, several miles away, that is causing your perception of it. It's causing your perceptual experience, more importantly, or at least a large component of it. That is certainly possible, and it's one easy interpretation, given a view of space, which is a view that we actually have in this world. But another view of space, which is that, but the other view of space, that space only extends six feet beyond your body, makes that impossible. That is not the answer. And if you are going to provide an answer, if you're going to describe your experiences as of being of distant mountains and light impinging and so on, you have to explain it using other material, using other entities, other things. You might explain it by appealing to some sort of holographic surface six feet from your face. Now, nobody believes that space is like that. There are two different theories of space that we have to dispute or debate and argue about. You might call these two theories presentism and non-presentism about space. Presentism is a view that only the present location is real. And non-presentism is a view that all locations are real. And as you can see, the difference between presentism and non-presentism in explaining your experience is significant. If you're a non-presentist, you can appeal to distant objects, things at other places, to help explain your experience. And in fact, in my book, I argue that you can explain an awful lot of phenomena to do with our perceptual experience of the external world by appealing to distant spaces, and they do a lot of the work. And to do with complex relationships between you and those spaces, it gives rise to a lot of the elements of your experience, even the stranger elements, even the elements that fail to correspond to the way the world actually is. Presentism about space, which I don't really explore in my book, it's just an analogy, not work this way. You can't use all those spaces out there because they're not there to do any work. They're not there to ground your experience. They're not there to be things that you see that are real. So this presentism and non-presentism about space is a made-up story. But what it means is that the different views of what is real out there in the world 
does make a difference to how we explain things. And that's, I mean, that's obvious. If you believe in elves, then when you explain the experiences of elves, of seeing fairies coming up to your door and dancing around your the back step, you explain it by seeing them. If you don't believe in elves, if you don't believe in fairies, then when you look out the back and you seem to see them dancing around your back step, you have to say, I'm dreaming or I'm hallucinating or something similar. But it's important to note that although I give this example of space, which is more fanciful in terms of our views of space, it is an analogy with different views of time. There is a presentism and non-presentism about time. Presentism about time says only the present moment is real. Non-presentism about time says all moments in time are real. And there's some nuance here. There's all, all the theories which are a mix and match of this. But let's just stick with those two distinctions for now. Because a lot of the ideas I like exploring are best illustrated by that stark distinction. Again, and this is what my book is about, if you explain our experience of the world, you either appeal to a presentist view of time to explain them, or appeal to a non-presentist view of time to explain them. And very briefly, I argue that intuitively we tend towards presentism about time. And certainly because of various discussions about time in the history of, of, of science, in the history of psychology, in the history of perception and physics. And the non-presentism about time is the outlier, not because it's false. In fact, most philosophical arguments and scientific theories support non-presentism over presentism. And I argue that our experience ends up being a further support for non-presentism over presentism because when you are a presentist, you have to cut out an awful lot of the things you hold to be real in the world that correspond to your experience. You seem to see maybe not a distant mountain, but you seem to see something happening in a distant star, which is a much starker distinction because of the time lag. But you can't really be seeing that distant star shining or something happening on it because it is in the past, and if you're a presentist, it isn't real. If you're a non-presentist, then it is real, and you can see it. Based on basic assumptions about experience, too, that we can only see or experience real things. But one of the reasons why I'm motivated by that, and it really does motivate a lot of my thinking about our experience, is because that's how it seems to us. Unlike when I'm imagining something, like imagining traveling to a distant star in a spaceship, I very, I very much seem to see a distant real thing. And that's what motivates me to say, I want a theory that makes it real. Because I want it to correspond to how the world seems to me in my experience. In the most basic grounding experience, which is my perception, my seeing, my touching, my tasting, my feeling. This is also why I'm interested in answers like my friend who said, claims that she imagined a picture of a unicorn when I asked her to imagine a unicorn. She was appealing to something that could very well be a memory, but she was answering a question about imagination. This suggests that when people are imagining, they may very well be drawing on their memory, and a lot of the components of their experience aren't like purely spun out of stuff, but are actually composites of memory experiences. And also why I'm interested in the idea that our memory experiences, and thus our imaginative experiences as well, might find themselves composed from 
are grounded in perceptual experiences, which is why I'm interested in source work to do with memory errors, to do with false memories. The thing about a source answer, source error answer to the false memories is that it doesn't deny your experience. It denies the composition of your experience. Let us say your imaginative experience is a composite or grounded in memory experiences. And let us say that your memory experiences are composed of or grounded in perceptual experiences. Then when somebody imagines, say, a balloon floating away from them, an event that never really happened, they are imagining an amount of elements that are actually based on their memory. They're imagining a balloon. When they think of a balloon, they're imagining actually a memory of seeing some balloon. In my case, I think of a picture of a balloon from a, f from a film I saw years ago called The Red Balloon. I don't really have balloons that float away. We didn't have them as kids, basically. And as an adult, you don't tend to play with balloons as much. So when I picture a red balloon floating away into the sky, I think of the film, The Red Balloon. Similarly, if that's the case, then when I'm asked to imagine myself with a red balloon and it floats away, I am remembering seeing a red balloon. I'm remembering myself being in a zoo and I'm kind of combining them in some way. And how I combine them is really interesting. And I think a lot of the work there, a lot of the work is that. Just like a toy or a piece of clothing, the interestingness about the object, in this case, the, the imagining, is the scene, how they are stitched together, and also how they fray, or how they overlap, or how the seam is visible. In this story, when I'm asked to imagine seeing the balloon float away from me, and asked later, do I remember the balloon floating away from me, the source error is because I'm actually unable to distinguish between different kinds of remembered perceptions. And the reason why I'm unable to distinguish between different kinds of remembered perceptions, and that's really what all the work is, is because my imagining of the balloon floating away is a remembered perception or a set of remembered perceptions put together in a certain way. And then there's also my perceptions, my memory of the actual perceptions of that day. So when I'm asked, hey, do you remember the time the balloon floated away? I'm remembering seeing a red balloon floating away. I'm remembering being at the zoo and I forget where the sources are because I'm unable to distinguish those. The issue here then would not be that our experiences aren't perceptual experiences on a basic level. The issue is that we aren't able to distinguish which ones happen when and how they relate to each other. And an awful lot of our work about restoring ourselves, about remembering who we are and where we were and how we were and how it relates to where we are later and so on. For example, remembering who we are when we're seven and connecting it to ourselves now and also ourselves in our 20s and getting a sense of a person over all that time, a single person, is that although we are always drawing on our perceptual experiences and they are genuine experiences, we rearrange them in different ways that alter the sense of who we are or at least problematize it. And what I mean by problematize here is, I mean that we can't simply say, I have perceptual experiences, I remember them, and through that I can tell you a story about myself that's accurate. Because the perceptual experiences I remember having are rearrangements of actual perceptual experiences. And this is also why this problem of false memory is a huge problem, especially when it comes to personal identity. It is a huge problem because no matter what I say about how our perceptual experience occurs, 
the account we give of ourselves as a human being is based on mix and matches accounts that are broken apart in different ways. And our sense for self might be different to the actual range. In 2010, I gave a talk at the Glucksman Art Gallery in University College Cork to an audience of about eight people. There was a series they do where the academics would talk about the art. So I was giving this talk about this artist whose work was there. I started talking about imagining things and I asked my audience to imagine your childhood bedroom, but on the bed is a donkey. And then another example I gave was, I want you to imagine a donkey with the body of a hummingbird. And then I asked people to imagine a hummingbird, but I had the head of a donkey. And the last two there are interesting to me because when I, the order of which I ask you to imagine things might alter the way in which you imagine things. Because one thing is imagined first. Simply mentioning the thing causes a part of you to slightly imagine or pull up a memory of it or, or some idea or image of it, including perhaps just a picture of it. And then when I ask you to imagine something else, depending on what you know about the other thing, you might add it to the original image and have a different experience. There's a lot in that, a lot that I'm not really covering, but one thing I find interesting about it is if you don't understand my very instruction, you have to understand what the two elements are before combining them. But the other thing is when you do combine them, it is, at least for me, a struggle sometimes to put them together properly. Imagine a heron that's brightly coloured, red and pink and striped. When I imagine it, I can say all kinds of things about it. But I tell you this, when I just said that, and I just made that up, and I struggled to actually imagine a stripy red and pink heron. And instead I imagined a heron that's normally grey and white, but happens to be lit by a brightly setting sun. The red light is what gives it this colour. It's fascinating I can do that. But it suggests that what I'm trying to do is come up with the answer to the instruction. Follow the instruction, but doing it based on as few elements as possible, as simply as possible. And in doing that, I'm drawing on things I know about, I've experienced or perceived. I'm drawing on my memory. That is to say, I seem to have a large store of memory experiences or memories that are of perceptual experiences in the past that I draw on when asked to imagine things and I use them to reconstruct the imagined instruction. And for me to even follow, it's worth noticing that for me to even understand an instruction like imagine X, Y, Z, I have to understand X, Y, and Z. And to understand X, Y, and Z, I have to know what they are. I have to have some idea of them. And those ideas themselves seem to be based in impressions, which themselves seem to be perceptual experiences. There's a lot of philosophers and psychologists who've talked and are fascinated by this, so I'm not new to any of this. In fact, the main thing I'm pushing is the idea that our imaginative and our memory experience, our imaginative experience and our memory experience are grounded and almost exhausted by perceptual experiences, reconstituted in various ways with us taking a particular stance or an attitude towards them. Not, they are not a whole other new experience made out of cloth. And potentially, although this is not something I'm going to go to here, they may stand in relation to our perceptual experiences as something stitching, attaching bits of them together, not copying them and then reattaching them. 
like I said, lots of psychologists and philosophers have talked about this. When I talk about impressions and ideas, I'm talking here about the idealists or the empiricists, um, especially in British philosophy in the last few hundred years, as in David Hume, Bishop Berkeley, the Irish philosopher. When I'm talking about comparing and imagining things and then comparing the differences between the imaginings given different sets of instructions, I'm drawing on psychological research, I think, by Shepard. But what I'm doing here, the thing I'm drawing on here, which is bringing me into thinking about personal identity, is that I'm trying to see how far we can go with taking it to be accurate, how much, as it were, truth in our experience we can ex we can have, and what experiments and evidence says that undermines that idea, whether or not it does, whether or not those experiments actually do all that work, and also whether philosophical thinking and arguments do that work as well. It's part of the reason why I'm not a presentist about time, because I think presentism about time complicates this stuff. The only appeal it has is the intuitive reaction we have, but to me that's not appetizing in itself. It's just that I don't think that presentism is a position that is worth defending. Anyway, that's my own kind of hang-ups. The point here is that you are left in a situation with maybe trusting that your experience has something that happened to you, something in the world, something you encountered that explains your experience, even in false memory and even in imagining, potentially even in dreams, because you can extend this to things like dreams. But the real question is, how do you trust your experience? I mean, imagine the following story. You are brought out into the world, you spend a couple of years encountering the world as a child, you're then locked away. And while you're locked away, you are asked about your past. You're old enough to answer questions and you're kept in one single room. And all the time you're asked by interpreters and, inter and researchers about your memory, events that happened to you. And through that, and through skillful manipulation of your source confusion to do with false memory, you're convinced that you spent years with lots of other events happening to you. You just forgot the source, but they weren't. They were imagined. You imagined them. Again, this is an important question, if that is possible. Because you're going to meet a lot of people, and I'm going to meet a lot of people, who claim to have experiences or claim to know things that I find don't fit in with my view of the world. They don't fit into my philosophy. But I also don't want to include them. I don't want them to be part of anybody's philosophy. Everything from conspiracy theories, supernatural, various human psychological characteristics, signs of people being extreme cowards and betrayers, society going bad. All these things are things that I know I don't want to be true. Or at least I see no reason to believe in them based on my own experience. Generally, my experience of people is that people tend to either neglect each other or tend to look out for each other, but they don't tend to be evil and go out of their way to harm each other. Only necessity brings that about, or perceived necessity at least. But maybe other people have different experiences. And I think they probably do. But I'm bringing up these examples specifically because I don't want to be taking a stance in the general position of sitting there and knowing that justification for picking out what is true of the actual world has to be grounded in my perceptual experience and in perceptual experience in general, in a shared perceptual experience. And yet, there are lots of claims about shared perceptual experiences that run counter 
to what I think is true of the world. And I can't have both of those because I'm talking about the actual world. I can't both say perceptual experience grounds claims about the actual world, not merely the possible world. And yet I believe things about the actual world that run counter to perceptual experiences. This is inconsistent. The only way I can do it is by grabbing the cases of perceptual experiences that are running counter to my theories of what I believe to be true of the actual world and saying they're not actually perceptual experiences. I have to say they're hallucinations, illusions, delusions. I have to say they're mere imaginings, false memories, dreams. But if they're grounded in our perceptual experience as well, then there must be some truth to them. And all of the work for knowing what's true of the actual world is in figuring out the difference between what might be called the recombined set of perceptual experiences found in memory and imagination and the actual perceptual experiences that are the source of those recombinations. And that is, requires a theory of, well, recombination, I guess, which is not fancy sounding, but that's what it is, a combination of experience. And I find it interesting when you ask questions about people imagining things, the way they answer it. I find it interesting how they imagine it, the order in which you ask them what that does, or the way, the, the shortcuts, the lazinesses that they take. To me, the laziness seems to go to memory rather than imagining, because it's easier. Which suggests to me that when most people start describing what they imagine, they're drawing on their memory, which means it could be more reliable than you think. Anyway, that'll do for now.